$1,000. The letter was written on Sunday afternoon, and Esther noted that uh, Eva had sung the hymn, O God, Our Help, in ages past, beautifully during the worship service that morning. Esther gave the letter addressed to her mother, to her husband, Benjamin, who put it in the pocket of his sheepskin coat. She intended for him to mail it when they arrived in New York. When the iceberg struck, he gave her his coat to keep warm. The coat and the letter survived. He didn't. Andrew Aldridge, head of Titanic and Ocean Memorabilia at Aldridge Auctioneers, said this, The importance of this legendary item cannot be overstated. Being the only known surviving example of its type to have been written on that fateful day, surviving the sinking and having belonged to such a well-known survivor. Well, this morning we're going to look at an even more important record of a shipwreck. Written by a survivor of a ship that sank in the Mediterranean nearly 2,000 years ago. But this shipwreck, while a harrowing experience for all aboard, was not as tragic as the Titanic. In fact, after the ship wrecked, everyone made it to shore. So I guess we could call it a successful shipwreck. We get an eyewitness account of this in the 27th chapter of Acts. It's written by Luke, Paul's friend and physician, who was on board the ship for Rome with him. His account is, is both exciting and interesting. Exciting because it's high adventure at sea. And interesting because it contains more facts about sailing the Mediterranean than all other ancient manuscripts put together. Since the account almost sounds like a ship's log, the sermon will too. Rather than having an eight-point sermon this morning, we'll simply have eight entries to examine. And in addition to its historical value, I think we'll all find this account personally relevant as well, even if we've never been on a cruise, because few of us find our journey through life to be smooth sailing all the way. And chances are pretty good that we too will crash at least once before we reach our destination. The good news, however, is that if we have invited Christ into our boat, we're guaranteed a successful shipwreck. Well, let's set sail with the Apostle Paul this morning and see how his shipwreck turned out. Acts 27. And when it was decided that we should sail for Italy, they proceeded to deliver Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. And embarking in the Adramidian ship, 
which was about to sail to the regions along the coast of Asia, we put out to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian of Thessalonica. And the next day we put in at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul with consideration and allowed him to go to his friends and receive care. Now, we don't know how much time has lapsed since Paul's audience with Agrippa, but chances are not much. Festus, you'll recall, was not a procrastinator. As soon as he figured out what to write in his letter to the emperor, he no doubt booked passage for Paul and some other passengers. Who they were, we don't know. But they were all put in charge of a Roman centurion named Julius. Accompanying Paul were Luke. We know that by the the we of the narrative, since Luke was the author. And Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. Aristarchus had accompanied Paul from Macedonia to Jerusalem with the offering for the destitute saints and had apparently stayed with him during his two-year imprisonment in Caesarea. In fact, he may himself have been a prisoner. For when Paul writes to the church at Colossae from Rome, Aristarchus sends his greetings as Paul's fellow prisoner. Well, if he wasn't actually a political prisoner, he was at least a prisoner of love, bound to Paul by bonds of friendship that could not be broken. And together they, along with Luke, embarked on an Adramidian ship that sailed along the coast of Asia Minor. Now, apparently it was a small ship, not destined for sailing the open sea. It served kind of like a a commuter airline to get Paul to the major airport. And then it sailed up the coast some 65 miles to Sidon, where they docked. Julius, the Roman centurion, like all centurions pictured in the uh, New Testament, was a man of character. He treated Paul with consideration and allowed him to visit the brethren in Sidon and receive care. Apparently, Paul wasn't in the best of health, and even a nice cruise on the Mediterranean would be taxing for him. But the cruise was not destined to go smoothly because the winds were contrary. Let's read on. And from there we put out to sea and sailed under the shelter of Cyprus because the winds were contrary. And when we had sailed through the sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we landed at Myra in Lycia. And there the centurion found an Alexandrian ship sailing for Italy, and he put us aboard it. And when we had sailed slowly for a good many days and with difficulty had arrived off Snidus, since the wind did not permit us to go any further, we sailed under the shelter of Crete off uh, Salmon. And with difficulty, sailing past it, we came to a certain place called Fair Havens, near which is the city of Lassia. As soon as they set out from Sidon, they encountered a bit of a problem. You know, winds that time of year usually blew from the northeast and That would have been helpful, would have been helpful, blowing them in the direction of Rome. But for some reason, the winds were contrary. 
apparently blowing from the northwest, exactly opposite of what they needed. So they had to duck behind the island of Cyprus and hung the Asian uh, coast, or hug the Asian coast, tacking against the wind. Eventually they arrived at the uh, Lycian port of Myra, where they found a larger ship, probably a 120 to 140 foot grain ship from Egypt, on its way to Rome. The centurion took command of the ship, and off they headed into open water. But they didn't get very far. The winds were still contrary. Again, they had to hug the coastline until they got to Snidus. And then, instead of going directly across the Aegean Sea, they had to head south and duck under the island of Crete, eventually taking refuge in Fair Havens, a small harbor near the city of Lassia. Now, the question arises, why were the winds contrary? Why did Paul face such difficulty? And it's going to get worse. Why did he face such difficulty while trying to do God's will? He's on his way to Rome to be a witness there, as Jesus had told him he would. You know, we expect such things to happen to Jonah trying to escape God's will, but why Paul? You know, surely God could have made the winds blow in the right direction. So why didn't he? Why didn't he? Why is it that even when we are doing God's will, things go wrong? Why doesn't he do something? To make it a little easier. Well, think about that as we continue. And when considerable time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous, since even the fast was already over, Paul began to admonish them and said to them, Men, I perceive that the voyage will certainly be attended with damage and great loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. The centurion was more persuaded by the pilot and the captain of the ship than by what was being said by Paul. And because the harbor was not suitable for wintering, the majority reached a decision to put out to sea from there, if somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete facing southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there. Well, things were getting worse. It was now after the Day of Atonement, which would have been October 5th in 59 A.D. The Mediterranean starts getting dangerous in mid-September, and by mid-November was impossible to sail. So Paul suggests that they stay put. He says if they try to go on, he's afraid they'll lose the cargo, the ship, and some lives. Now, he's not prophesying here. He's simply using common sense. He had been on ships before, and he knew what to expect. But the centurion decided that the pilot and captain of the ship knew better. Besides, no one really wanted to winter 
in fair havens. It really wasn't a good harbor. And there was nothing there to keep the crew entertained, let alone comfortable. So they took a vote. And once again, the majority was wrong. They decided to head to Phoenix, some 50 miles up the coast of Crete. It's too bad they didn't realize that a lot of things can happen by the time you get to Phoenix. (laughs) Okay. 13 through 20. (laughs) And when a moderate south wind came up, supposing that they had gained their purpose, they weighed anchor and began sailing along Crete, close inshore. But before very long, there rushed down from the land a violent wind called Eurachilo. And when the ship was caught in it and could not face the wind, it gave way to it and let ourselves be driven along. And running under the shelter of a small island called Clauda, we were scarcely able to get the ship's boat under control. And after they had hoisted it up, they used supporting cables to undergird the ship. And fearing that they might run aground in the shallows off Sirtis, they let down the sea anchor and so let themselves be driven along. The next day, as we were being violently storm-tossed, they began to jettison the cargo. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. And since neither sun nor stars appeared for many days... And no small storm was assailing us. From then on, all hope of our being saved was gradually abandoned. What a storm. And it started after a break in the weather. You know, soon after they voted not to stay in Fair Havens, the wind changed. And a, a moderate southerly wind encouraged them to go for it. So they hoisted the sail and left harbor. But as soon as they left shore, the dreaded Eurachilo, a violent wind from the northeast that rushed off the land, struck and blew them into open sea. They were able to slip behind the little island of Clauda long enough to hoist the lifeboat that they had been dragging behind the ship on board. And then they ran some cables under the ship to keep the planks from separating, to to hold the boat together. Next, they dropped the sea anchor to slow them down and hoped they wouldn't be blown into the sands of Sirtis off the coast of North Africa, the infamous graveyard of many a ship. Things got even worse on the next day the crew began tossing cargo overboard to lighten the ship. And by the third day, they were even throwing the ship's tackle overboard. Then, after days of darkness, with no sun by day or stars by night to figure out where they were, they lost all hope of making it. Even Paul was wondering what was going on. Jesus had promised he would make it to Rome, but maybe he was going to witness posthumously. Again, we raise the question, what's going on here? 
Why is God letting this happen? Now, Paul is doing what God wants. And things are getting worse and worse. It doesn't make sense. Why doesn't God do something? Why does He allow such storms to come upon His people, especially when they're trying to be obedient? Isn't He going to do something? Let's find out. And when they had gone a long time without food, then Paul stood up in their midst and said, Men, you ought to have followed my advice and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this damage and loss. And yet, now I urge you to keep up your courage, for there shall be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night, An angel of the Lord, to whom I belong and whom I serve, stood before me, saying, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who are sailing with you. Therefore, keep up your courage, men, for I believe God that it will turn out exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on a certain island. Apparently, Paul had been doing some heavy-duty praying. He was afraid. Everyone was afraid. They were too upset to eat. But Paul had something to say. So he stood in the midst of them and said, in effect, I told you so. I told you so. You should have listened to me. We could have avoided this. You didn't listen to me then, but listen to me now. We're going to be okay. Last night, an angel told me not to be afraid that we were going to make it. That I'm going to stand before Caesar and that God has granted my prayer concerning all of you. We're all going to make it. So hang on. I believe God will do exactly what He said He'll do. I'm not second-guessing God here. I'm not hoping things will turn out okay. I'm not assuming God will do what I think He ought to do. I know He will do what He said He will do. My confidence is built on Him and His Word. The same is true for us today. We only get disappointed when we expect God to do something He's never promised to do. Because He always does what He says He'll do. That does not, however, mean we should do nothing. Let's see what Paul did next. But when the fourteenth night had come, as we were being driven about in the Adriatic Sea, about midnight, the sailors began to surmise that we were approaching some land. And they took soundings and found it to be twenty fathoms. 
And a little further on, they took another sounding and found it to be 15 fathoms. And fearing that we might run aground somewhere on the rocks, they cast four anchors from the stern and wished for daybreak. As the sailors were trying to escape from the ship and had let down the ship's boat into the sea on the pretense of intending to lay out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and to the soldiers, Unless these men remain in the ship, you yourselves cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it fall away. After two weeks lost at sea, the sailors sensed that land was close and and took soundings, dropping a, a marked rope that was tied to a weight overboard. The first sounding was 20 fathoms, 120 feet. Then 15 fathoms, 80 feet. They were coming into land in the pitch dark and in danger of slamming into the rocks. So they cast four anchors off the stern, the back of the ship, and hoped they would hold until daybreak. Then the sailors tried to abandon ship. They pretended to lay out anchors from the bow, the front of the ship, but were really just lowering the lifeboat so they could escape. Well, Paul saw what was going on and interceded. He told the centurion and the soldiers to stop them or they would all be lost. They would need the sailors to make it safely to land. So the soldiers cut away the lifeboat and kept everyone together in the same boat. Now, isn't it interesting how Paul, a prisoner, had risen to being in charge? It's a powerful picture of a man of God, a man of action, a man of faith, who realized it isn't enough to just sit back and let God. God calls us to participate in His plans. We've got a part to play. And Paul was willing to do his. He also enabled others to do their part as well. And until the day was about to dawn, Paul was encouraging them all to take some food, saying, Today is the 14th day. You've gone constantly watching and going without eating, having taken nothing. Therefore, I encourage you to take some food, for this is for your preservation. For not a hair from the head of any of you shall perish. And having said this, he took bread and gave thanks to God in the presence of all, and he broke it and began to eat. And all of them were encouraged, and they themselves also took food. And all of us in the ship were 276 persons. And when they had eaten enough, they began to lighten the ship by throwing out the wheat into the sea. They'd gone 14 days without food. They were as weak as kittens. 
Paul was a practical man. He knew they had to eat. They had a big day ahead of them. So he fixed breakfast. He reminded them of God's promise. He thanked him for the food and started eating. And that got everyone eating. Got everybody strengthened for what lay ahead. When all had eaten what they needed, they tossed the rest overboard and waited for daybreak. And when day came, they could not recognize the land, but they did observe a certain bay with a beach, and they resolved to drive the ship onto it if they could. And casting off the anchors, they left them in the sea, while at the same time they were loosening the ropes of the rudders and hoisting the foresail to the wind, they were heading for the beach. Striking a reef where two seas met, they ran the vessel aground. And the prow stuck fast and remained immovable, but the stern began to be broken up by the force of the waves. And the soldiers' plan was to kill the prisoners that none of them should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wanting to bring Paul safely through, kept them from their intention and commanded that those who could swim should jump overboard first and get to land, and the rest should follow, some on planks and others on various things from the ship. And thus it happened that they were all brought safely to land. When day came, they saw a bay with a beach and decided to head for it. They cut the anchors. They loosened the rudders. They raised the foresail and headed for land, hoping to beach the ship only to crash into a reef and get stuck. The waves beat against the ship, but rather than shake it loose, it broke it up. And the back half began to fall apart. The soldiers got ready to kill the prisoners because they could not let them escape. If they escaped, the soldiers would pay the prisoners' penalty. But Julius intervened, primarily to save Paul and told everyone to jump overboard. Those who could swim were to go for it. Those who couldn't were to grab a plank or anything that would float and catch a wave to shore. And they did. All 276 of them made it. As Luke put it, and thus it happened that they were all brought safely to land. God was true to His Word. He brought them through. But again, we ask, why did they have to go through such a hard time? Why do shipwrecks have to come? especially when we're doing God's will. Well, I believe the Scriptures teach us at least three things that might help us understand this. 
The first is the presence of Satan. A spiritual being who opposes the things of God. You know, Paul wrote to the Romans that he had been hindered many times from coming. Apparently, Satan didn't want Paul in Rome and did all he could to delay his arrival. And we will never begin to understand the difficulties we face until we realize we have an enemy. That we are in the midst of spiritual warfare. That the powers of darkness are fighting against us. The next thing we learn is that even though God can override something, He doesn't always do so. Maybe He wants to accomplish something more than we realize. You know, had everything gone smoothly, Paul would have had negligible effect on the 273 people who were traveling with him and his companion. But as it turned out, they all owed their lives to this man of God. They learned what a man of faith can do when he trusts in God's Word. And then, as we learn from Job, God doesn't reveal everything to us. And we don't have to understand everything. All we need do is trust that God knows what He is doing. That He is in control even in the midst of the storms of life. And that if we will trust Him, He will see us through. You know, the road through life is not easy. It wasn't for Christ, and it won't be for us. The road he traveled included a cross. But as we are reminded every Easter, it's the way of the cross that leads home. Never forget that the shipwrecks you endure in life will ultimately be successful if You've invited the resurrected Christ into your boat. Amen. Let's stand.